Book One, Chapter Four of The Mask by Florence Irwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Many a mother, feeling the weight of her responsibilities lying too heavily upon her, had come to Mrs. Terry for advice on the training of daughters. Your girls are so wonderful, was the universal cry. How did you ever do it? Common sense, Mrs. Terry always answered. Common sense and lack of modern theories. In sooth, however, it was much more than this. It was the combined efforts of a clear head, a warm heart, a flawless breeding, an infinite patience, and a vigilance that never slept. The first three ingredients go to make up that elusive quality known as tact. With the addition of the last two, they form a combination that is rather sure to win out in the long run. As Mrs. Terry was human and not divine, there were still a few weak spots in her system, but it would be difficult to produce one with fewer. Some women are born to be mothers, and some are born to be wives. The woman who is born to be both is a queen among her sisters, and lucky are her children, and the man who wins her for his life companion. One of the flaws in Mrs. Terry's system was her prejudice against arguments, even friendly arguments. To an active intelligence, a keen argument is as stimulating and as strengthening as is any good physical exercise to the bodily muscles. Be it admitted that friendly argument has a tendency to develop into unfriendly argument, especially in the case of the young. Let effort then be made to teach youthful argument to confine itself to friendliness rather than to strangle it at birth. Mrs. Terry herself, however, was as incapable of logical argument as she was of flying, and the practice was taboo in her home. With her oldest and youngest daughter, this special stricture mattered little. Elsa had inherited the maternal prejudice, and was too lazy, anyhow, to enjoy arguments, and Gertrude was indifferent to them, her interests lying rather with persons than with thoughts. Broadly speaking, Elsa Terry was interested in herself, Gertrude in people, and Alison in thoughts. This being so, Alison had a terrific desire to thresh out the why of everything that came under her observation. The greatest proof of the real force of the mother's character was the way in which she had always been able to handle Alison, in spite of the difference in their mental type. The girl always sought reasons, the mother never wanted to give them. The younger mind was logical, the older one far less so. That is enough, my dear, we won't argue the question, was the inevitable ultimatum at the end of each tentative discussion. Granting that unquestioning obedience is the first duty of every child and the first right of every parent, the fact still remains that Mrs. Terry's method, carried to an excess, would be nothing more nor less than a mental big stick. Just as a professional pugilist may silence every argument by the force of a physical blow, so may the pedagogue silence real thirst for information by the formula, don't try to teach me anything, if you please. I am the teacher here, not you. I'll have you know. Once, when Alison was in her early teens, she had asked her mother if it were not hypocritical to pretend to like persons whom one really did not like, and to treat everyone equally. Not at all, my dear, Mrs. Terry had replied. You do not pretend to like them. You merely look for the best in them and shut your eyes to that which is not so good. There is good in everyone, and it is our duty to seek it. When a miner seeks for gold, he does not expect to find it all in pure, unadulterated nuggets. 
he knows that it must be mixed with dross sometimes even hidden by it yet the gold is there and it is still valuable yes cried the girl but he doesn't keep the dross he throws it away and keeps just the gold and he doesn't pretend that it's all just alike and if he strikes a vein that has a lot of dirt and mighty little gold he just says oh this is a rotten vein and goes away and leaves it alison said her mother sharply how often must i tell you not to use that word rotten it is disgusting well forgive the word please mother i'll try to remember but about that dross that is enough alison no arguments please and it had to be enough after all perhaps the lesson in self-control was more valuable to alison than a dozen arguments would have been no arguments and no gossip was the motto of the house the question was would these girls be able to live up to their training if they ever got out into the big world and into the thick of life or would there be reversion to a less exclusive type the very first mental riddle that alison could remember had come up when she was a very little girl she had found a strange word in the bible and had asked her mother what it meant mrs terry after a little hesitation had replied that it was an old-fashioned word which had now no special meaning that her daughter would understand note the saving clause whereupon alison who had a very retentive memory had proceeded to use the word and of course had chosen an occasion where there were a number of strangers present for many a year she used to wonder over the evident though concealed commotion she had produced and her mother's subsequent sharp but non-explanatory rebuke from first to last the keynote of alison terry's character was simplicity coupled with selflessness selflessness is probably the rarest of human attributes it is no more like unselfishness than it is like selfishness it is an almost absolute negation of the self-element and of self-consciousness its possessor judges himself as he would a stranger when he thinks of himself at all which is rarely he commends the good and condemns the bad with utter lack of partiality mrs terry had a distinct sense of the difference between adult and juvenile intellects a clear appreciation of the fact that they do not demand the same food she had not felt it necessary to tell her children as children the entire mystery of life this had ensured them that innocent childhood which is the greatest asset in the world no premature wisdom can ever take its place when circumstances are so unfortunate as to make premature wisdom a necessary precaution then it must unfortunately be taught but to the home-reared mother-sheltered child mental innocence is a natural birthright from all of this it may be seen that almost the only joint in mrs terry's maternal armor was refusal to reason and the average modern mother will probably take exception to my statement that that mattered surprisingly little mrs terry knew that there was as little likelihood of reason being stifled as of veneration developing unaided she knew that while none but the dullest child would fail to find the weak spot in the argument that sought to rob him of a coveted pleasure it would be a very exceptional child who would yield gracefully to parental authority unless trained to do so reason is a natural gift veneration an acquired one reason is like a rushing torrent it may be curbed it may be damned it may be diverted 
but it is never destroyed, nor can it be indefinitely held back. The average modern child scarcely knows the meaning of the word reverence. The Terry girls knew it well. They reverenced their parents, and they adored them. Not even among themselves was filial criticism ever whispered. Filial criticism, by the way, is a practice more common than safe. But in the Terry family it would have been regarded with horror. It had not even mental existence. It was a rare household. Perhaps the reason for Mrs. Terry's strong hold over her daughters was that she herself was so intensely human. Had she been flawless, she could never have been so beloved. She gloried in the fact that her three daughters were all fair to look upon. She confidently hoped to see them all married. No convent ideals were hers. In the matter of isolation from connections and relations, the family situation was rather a peculiar one. Mr. Terry was an only son, and the child of his father's old age. This father, a man of birth, of wealth, of simple tastes, and of scholarly habits, had married late in life, and he had made a singularly unfortunate choice. His pretty young wife chafed at the restraint imposed upon her, and the rift between husband and wife grew wider with the years. One little daughter, the replica of her mother, was their only child until she was twelve years old. Then her little brother was born. The new baby, being sickly, was left entirely to nurses and to his absolutely devoted father. When he was eight and his sister was a beauty of twenty, the mother and daughter went to Paris for the winter. Neither of them ever came back. The daughter married a wealthy banker, and the mother died on the eve of her intended return. Mr. Terry and his little son led a singular life. Their only interests were books and each other. Just as the boy approached manhood, the father turned his attention to the study of the Christian religion from a purely historic standpoint. The result was, however, that the son embraced the new ideas with fervor, insisted on studying for holy orders, and was finally ordained a priest of the Episcopal Church. The agnostic father, at first aghast, became more and more reconciled, particularly as he realized the calm and perfect happiness of his son. A few months after the young clergyman received his first call, as assistant in a large city parish, he was invited to a clerical tea-party at the house of one of his parishioners, Miss Honor Masland. It was a case of love at first sight between young Terry and the pretty niece of his hostess. Betrothal and marriage followed close on the heels of love. Then came the call to Coningsboro, and down to the little town went the beautifully happy young couple to take up their residence in the inconvenient old rectory on a very small salary. By the time his third little granddaughter was born, Archibald Terry Sr. was a very old man, very old and very happy. He saw his son's life blossoming with the promise of peace and happiness. He was devoted to his daughter-in-law, and the slave of his pretty grandbabies, all babies together, as there were but three and a half years between the first and the last. The simplicity of the Coningsboro life made strong appeal to the old man. While he realized the class difference between his son's family and most of their new associates, he delighted in it. One of his inherent beliefs was that each man's salvation or damnation lay in himself and in those most closely bound to him. 
he deplored general friendship and large circles of intimates and he knew that they were not apt to thrive among unequals only one thing troubled him the dingy old rectory thus it came about that he set himself the congenial task of the last two years of his life he built and endowed what was still known as the new rectory of st mary's church endowed it because otherwise it would have been too heavy a burden for the parish to carry there was a perpetual fund that provided for all repairs and expenses even to the services of a man to take care of the generous lawns it was the only toy that archibald terry had ever bought for himself and he played with it lovingly till death closed his eyes it was a pity that he could not have lived to watch the unfolding of the mind of his granddaughter alison he would have recognized so many traits and have rejoiced in them however length of days had brought him ultimate peace the rectory had been an expensive toy it cut mr terry's annual income down to about twelve thousand dollars which he left evenly divided between his daughter juliette and his son the former didn't need it to the latter it meant increased opportunities for charity aunt juliette was merely a name to the three terry girls it was little more to their father none of them would have recognized the elegant mrs lowe had they met her by chance family ties lacking and home education precluding the chance of boarding-school acquaintances it followed that overnight guests at st mary's rectory were rare nothing more exciting than visiting clergymen or delegates to clerical conventions ever materialized family life flowed smoothly and with few interruptions one month's vacation each summer did mr terry permit himself and then the entire family journeyed to an unfashionable mountain resort famed for its air the same place every year when elsa and gertrude grew restive and wanted a change it was explained to them that this place rested father very wonderfully he enjoyed the long tramps and the simplicity of the life and the two girls not having the slightest idea of the actual family income acquiesced with sufficient grace in what they supposed was inevitable two or three times a winter the terrys saw a play in the city which was three hours journey from their home it was a rather small city but it seemed wonderfully big and festive to the quietly reared girls for weeks they looked forward to these trips the stay at the hotel the two or three days of gaiety the shopping and fittings and the theatre party at which they always saw some famous actor or actress were the white highlights of their existence elsa and gertrude always came home a little discontented and impatient for the arrival of the results of the fittings alison walked around in a sort of a maze for days after her return and did much secret scribbling in a big blank book then gradually accustomed habits reasserted their hold and life became more restful and less puzzling be it at once understood and admitted that the terry parents hugged their isolation to their hearts and entreated it to remain by their fireside for themselves nothing more was needed for happiness than their children and each other after nearly twenty-five years of married life they were still lovers and well did they know the perils to their system should their three darlings once be turned loose on a stage setting of worldliness surrounded by their social equals and forced into leading roles in life's real comedies and tragedies 
Vaguely the parents looked forward to the days when their daughters would be settled in homes of their own, with established philosophies as safeguards, with babies as outlets, with devoted husbands as screens from life's rude blasts. But when it came to explaining how all this was to happen, Mr. and Mrs. Terry could not have told you. They were well content with Elsa's choice, but the fact remained that she had actually preempted almost the only young man in Coningsboro whom they really considered eligible to the position of son-in-law. However, time and providence were the forces on which they pinned their hopes. Deep down in their hearts there was another tiny wellspring of content whose existence was not realized even by its possessors. Both Mr. and Mrs. Terry loved the pedestals to which they had grown so accustomed. Why should they court a change which might necessitate their stepping down into any arena, however select? End of Book 1, Chapter 4